As we get started this morning, I just wanted to um, call out thanks to a few folks. I don't know if you guys realize that Ryan Buckner throws together PowerPoints and videos and stuff from all directions in just a couple minutes before each service. So thank you, Ryan and um, Jim and Norma and Vivian for all you do, um, leading us in musical worship and Bethany. And a couple weeks ago, I came by the church and saw Ryan Rust out there by himself, pulling frozen leaves out of the gutters with his hands by himself. And so just wonderful to see all the people of the church coming together and um, glorifying God by our service to each other. We're going to be uh, looking at Acts chapter 4 this morning. And we'll read the first 22 verses. We're zooming through the book of Acts. We're already on chapter 4, 3 down, and what is it, 20 or so left to go. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word that you have given to enlighten our minds, to change our hearts, to draw us together and to worship you. 
God, I pray that your will would be done this morning as we gather together to worship you by studying the word. May you change our hearts and make us more like you. Amen. Well, if you think that Joe gives long sermons, you should hear Peter. Because at the point where we join him here, he's been at it for about three hours. At the beginning of chapter 3, we see Peter and John going up to the temple at the ninth hour, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time these events roll around, it's evening. So obviously, we don't have all of Peter's sermon recorded in uh, chapter 3, but the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to give us what we needed there. And by the way, Joe, I'm just teasing you. I love the way you preach. Keep on hitting us with the word. But as they were speaking, as John and Peter were speaking, they were saying some things that caught the attention of the priests that there were there nearby. Things questioning the wisdom of the rulers, things calling them to account for the part that they had played in uh, killing Jesus. And we think that these priests probably weren't the the priests that were like the high priest and the high priestly family that were there full-time uh, ministering in the temple. We know that the Levites in Israel at this point had kind of a system of a Levite national guard where they would spend most of their time at home with their families, could be anywhere in Israel. They would go for a few weeks to tend to the duties of uh, the temple, the helping out with the sacrifices and sweeping up and all these things that have to happen to, to take care of the house of the Lord and when they finished their few weeks, they would go back to their homes and somebody else would come and take their place. So these priests who first heard what Peter and John were saying weren't really the ones in authority in the area. And so they quickly go and one of them runs off to the captain of the temple who uh, was probably the, like the second in command priest uh, responsible for keeping the peace in the area. And also the Sadducees. Because one of the things that Peter and John was talking about that they didn't like or thought that the Sadducees wouldn't like would be preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes people say that uh, the Bible is a boring book to read, and I don't think so. You look here, and I see um, Luke has a sense of humor because he says that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed at this teaching, and that's got to be understatement. <laughs> As you look at Paul's encounter with the same group of people at the end of the book of Acts, and he sees Sadducees there, and he says, I am on trial because of my hope of the resurrection of the dead. And just those words was enough to send that counsel into chaos and argumentation. Greatly annoyed, Luke says. I find that funny. Maybe it's just my dry sense of humor. We also find that this view that the Sadducees held... Uh, that there was no resurrection of the dead. And that's not talking about just whether Jesus rose from the dead. That's like they said, we live, we die, and that's it. Um, that was somewhat of a common belief at that time, especially among the aristocratic families, the wealthy families in Jerusalem. So this wasn't just the Sadducees that believed this. And it was different from what the Pharisees and the leaders, um, uh, the, the spiritual leaders of the temple believed that uh, belief or disbelief in the resurrection of the dead didn't just go away either. We see uh, 20 years later, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's addressing these things and saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of us will rise from the dead. And if we have hope in this life only, we are of most men to be pitied. I think it's still 
here with us. I think the dominant view in our country now is you live, you die, and that's it. These uh, false teachings of the Sadducees have not disappeared. But anyway, uh, by the time they uh, get there and Peter and John um, ready to deal with them, it's already evening. The priests and everybody is ready to hit their evening commute home, and they say, ah, let's lock them up for the evening. We'll let them cool their heels, and we'll deal with it tomorrow. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together, and this is, um, most people think, the description of the Sanhedrin coming together. So this is the formal court of Israel coming to, um, to, to determine this message uh, that Peter and John are sharing. It says a couple of people by name. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas are two of those. And Annas at this point wasn't technically the high priest anymore as far as Rome was concerned because they had deposed him for some political stuff that was going on and replaced him with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But the Jews didn't care what Rome said about who was high priest. They continued to call Annas high priest because that was a lifelong position that he was uh, appointed to by God. So they bring them, bring Peter and John before them, and they get right to the point. By what power or by what name did you do this? They know very well by what name and by what power this was done. That's the reason Peter and John were there at all. But there seems to be a note of um, condemnation here. Because they know the work was done in the name of Jesus, they assume or imply that the work was evil, that it was wrong what these uh, apostles had done. But Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, given the words that God would want him to preach. And he reclaims that conversation immediately. In verse 9, it says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed, let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. So he doesn't let them get away with taking this, uh, implying that what they had done is wrong. He says, this is a good deed that has been done. And the whole point of these miracles that we see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well is to legitimatize the message of the person who is speaking. The point here was to see the work that Peter and John had done in healing in the name of Jesus and therefore listen to them and accept the message about Jesus Christ and praise God for the work that he had done just as the people there were doing. They saw, they understood, but the rulers didn't. They went the opposite way. They said, we hear this name of Jesus that we don't like and that means what's done in his name must always be wrong. But in any case, Peter doesn't just stop there. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this is a reference to Psalm 122, sorry, 118, verse 22, um, a, a prophecy about the Messiah, an analogy talking about how Jesus was rejected in the building of the building, but now has become the cornerstone, the very part that the entire building is based off of. And Joe talked uh, quite a while ago about that um, right angle of the stone, that everything has to follow that line in order for the building to come together the way it's supposed to. So uh, we see it's common, uh, especially in the early parts of Acts, for the apostles to uh, mention the prophetic 
writings of the Old Testament and explain how Jesus fulfills those things. And we see that here again. And he still doesn't stop there. He lays it on it one more time. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a little bit of wordsmithing going on here in what Peter says. Because the root of the word that's translated at the end of verse 12 as be saved is the same root as what's translated at the end of verse 9 has been healed. So this concept of salvation or of healing in the Greek language is super broad. It's the same root and it gets tweaked in different ways. Uh, But it can mean anything from salvation from financial ruin, salvation from poor health, all the way to salvation as we understand it in the spiritual theological sense of salvation from our sins because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so the point that Peter is making so artfully here is that what's true of this uh, cripple's physical condition is also true of his spiritual condition. He was lame from birth, more than 40 years. There was no hope for him of healing from doctors, from medicine, from surgery, none of that. But only in the name of Jesus Christ did he have hope for physical healing. And just as that's true of his body, it's true of his spirit. The one hope he had was in the name of Jesus Christ. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And the education here is talking about two things. Peter and John were common working men. They had rough hands. They had been called off of the beaches by Jesus and said, follow me, I've got work for you to do. They hadn't been trained in the formal theology like the people that they were gathered in front of today were. As the rich families of Jerusalem would have all gone to these, you know, prep schools and and private schools to learn these things, but Peter and John didn't have access to any of that. So they weren't trained in the theology. They also weren't trained in rhetoric. Rhetoric is the science or the art of persuasive reasoning. And they had had none of that Greek education that was so important to the Greek culture at that time of how do you persuade people to think the way you think. None of that training. What they had was the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so when they see the boldness of these two apostles, it says that they recognized they had been with Jesus. I'm sure they were remembering back to when Jesus was 12 years old, in the temple, same place, 30, no, 22 years ago or so, before these events, And he amazed the leaders of Israel by his understanding of the word, despite his young age, despite the fact that he was a country bumpkin. And then there are multiple times throughout the Gospels where it is said that uh, Jesus um, amazed the crowds and and stumped the leaders because of his wisdom, the the authority of his teaching. And and the fact that he didn't have any formal education is is called out a couple of times. People amaze them. And so just as Jesus kind of got under these guys' skin in his authority, in his power, in his boldness, these guys do too. Peter and John reminded them of their encounters with Jesus. 
But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And so they asked Peter and John to leave so that they can talk privately. What are we going to do about these guys spreading this name that we thought we had squished and killed and shut down? And we see here the depth and the strength of these men's hard hearts. Because even though they saw that a good deed had been done and they knew it was good, even though they saw the power by which that miracle had been performed and they knew it was notable, they couldn't deny that. They still wanted to suppress the name by which this miracle was done. So they called them in and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We see the limit to submission to authorities that is implied in uh, Romans 13 and Peter's writings that once the authorities are saying that we cannot do what God has commanded or that we must do what God has forbidden, that's that limit that's implied there. And if we want a clear example, here is definitely one. If somebody tells us not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, we not only may obey that command, but we must, because we are all, as Christians, called to be part of that message of salvation, to speak and teach in the name of Jesus Christ. I wish every example that we run into in, world, in the uh, world today was as cut and dried as this one, but here we have a very clear line we can follow. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And this isn't Peter and John giving some kind of an appeal to relativism. They're not saying, you priests decide what's right for you, and we'll decide what's right for us, and we'll do our thing, and you do your thing, and we'll all be good because somehow God will figure it out. It's not what they're saying. They're calling the high priests, they're calling the authorities of Israel to remember the role that God had given them because these are the elders of Israel who are called to spiritually discern what is going on. It was their responsibility to answer exactly this question, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to them or to God. They must judge. That was the job that God had given them. And Peter and John are respectfully calling them to that but not backing down from their position. We must speak of the things that we have seen and heard, regardless of what you guys decide. Verse 21, it says, When they had further threatened them, they let them go. And those threats we see are a foreshadowing of the very next chapter when uh, Peter and John are going to find themselves right back here, same place, same reason, and they don't get away uh, unscathed the next time. But they let them go this time finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So they wait till next time to, to take more serious action. But I want to circle back through this passage again and see what nuggets there are that we can take out of this and stick in our pocket for the week that's to come. First of all, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
If you are hearing me say those words today, if you are seeing that clearly, so clearly expressed in Scripture, and you are not a Christian, that probably sounds narrow-minded and exclusivist and discounting of other people's cultural background. What we need to understand, though, is that the Bible teaches us who God is. He is holy. He is perfect. And we are not. The Bible says that God created all things, and that includes you and me. And he has the right and the authority to do as he wills with his creation. And so we have to recognize, because those things are true, that for God to provide even one way for us broken, sinful people to be reconciled to his holiness demonstrates the greatest love and the greatest mercy that has ever been known. Even one way to be reconciled to perfection is amazing. And so if you're listening and you are not yet in Christ, I beg you that you would not let another day go by. Jesus paid the penalty for sin, and he is calling you to repent of your sins, to turn and to be saved, to make him the Lord of your life. A second thing that we see out of this passage is that Peter and John take the idea of respect for authorities to an extreme. And it reminds me again of when Paul was before these same people for the same reason. He said something they didn't like, and the high priest commanded him to be smacked across the mouth. Broke Hebrew law, broke Roman law. And Paul's mad, and he says, may you also be struck down from your position. They reprimand him, saying, don't you realize you are talking to the high priest? And he is immediately repentant for his rebellion against the high priest. Not repentant of his message of Jesus Christ. He never backs down from that. But he understood the Old Testament law that to speak a word against the high priest was wrong. He took it to an extreme. Even though the high priest wasn't being respectable, even though the high priest was doing things that were wrong, he was still respectful of that position of authority. I also think about David when David was running from Saul. Saul, who had gone insane of, from his jealousy for David and didn't just you know, try to rough him up once. He tried to kill him over and over and over again. And at one point, David's hiding out in a cave with his men, having fled from Jerusalem. Saul's out there on the, uh, hunting, trying to hunt him down. Saul goes into the cave for a break, and David had the opportunity. He could have easily picked up his spear and killed Saul then and there, but he didn't. And he says, why? How could I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed one? And that's after David had already been anointed to be the next king of Israel. If I had been there, I would have said, God, thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to accomplish your purpose, and bam, job done, I'm the new king not David. He took that respect for God's placement of Saul in that position of authority to an extreme point. 
regardless of what we may think of the current president or the one that will be next, regardless of what we may think of our governor or our mayor or city council, county commissioners, the sheriff, your teacher or your boss, we owe them a debt of respect because it is God who had placed them in authority over us. Does that mean that we let them get away with murder? No. Peter and John addressed that directly. This Jesus whom you crucified. They literally are not letting these guys get away with murder. Christians are called to be salt and light in the world, and that world includes our country, it includes our state, it includes your workplace, it includes your school. And so we need to be salt and light there and call our leaders to accountability, to recognize that it's not the state and the church or the state and the church like this. It's not either one of those things, but that God is above all. And it is beneath his authority that the church has any power, that the state has any power, that my boss has any power. It's because of God's authority that he has given to them. But we do that respectfully when we call them to accountability. If you spend more time angry about the works of men, then you spend rejoicing about the work of our Father in heaven, then you are serving an idol of anger. If you spend more time saying sarcastic things about whoever is in authority over you, then you spend praising the name of God, then you are serving an idol of slander. It matters the things that we say. It's right for us to be watching what's going on in the world. We've got to have our radar up. It's right for us to be paying attention, but the problem with us is that we have a tendency to respond to things that we're concerned about either by being afraid or by being angry. And either one of those is not what God wants for us because we have not been given a spirit of timidity. We cannot be afraid. Neither does the anger of men bring about the righteousness that God desires. We cannot be angry. And whichever way you are tempted to respond to the things that happen around us, the solution, the the action that we should do is the same. There is salvation in no one else. The problems around us, whether it's physical problems, whether it's Uh, political problems, whether it's salvation from your sins, the solution is in Jesus Christ. And that is where we need to be doing instead of just allowing our emotions to cloud us and to, to let Satan crush our testimony by fear or by anger. We've got to be doing. Why does it matter? It matters because we have a work to do. That Jesus has called us to this commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And Joe's been hammering this, and David's been hammering this, and I've been hammering this, and I hope we're almost sick of it, but we're going to keep on talking about it. That work is unfinished. As we have seen in these missions videos over the past several uh, weeks, that work is unfinished. It's easy to see how it's unfinished in China or in Africa or in South America where there are people who have not yet heard the name of Christ or don't have... Uh, the Bible available in their mother tongue. It's easy to see it there, but it's unfinished here too. 
I'm quite certain that if I went out and talked to anybody on the street and said, have you heard the name of Jesus? They'd say yes. I'm quite certain that they have access to a Bible and a language that is close to their heart. And probably most of them have one on their shelf, whether they read it or not. But they haven't yet heard the gospel in its rightness, that God saves sinners. And if they have heard that message, they haven't heard it in the moment and the time that the Spirit has chosen to change their lives, to change their hearts. The gospel is difficult enough. We read in the Bible that it is a stench to those who are perishing. We read that it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but wisdom to those whom God has called. And so let it be the gospel that offends in our message and not the way that we carry ourselves. Because whether you are crippled by fear or by anger, either one of those is a turnoff that doesn't come from the gospel, which is bold, which is loving. And so there are five things that need to characterize our testimony that I see from this passage. I was looking for six because I wanted to give us homework for every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But I've got five, so you've got Saturday off this week. Um, They're in the bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, um, they're up on the uh, projector as well. And write these down because there's too much here for us to uh, get in the short time that remains to us. So you're going to have to spend time in prayer with these, um, about how to apply these to your life. Uh, The first one is that our testimony needs to be bold. Peter and John didn't let anything stand in their way. They were bold and powerful in the message that they had given. And we need to have confidence as well. Sometimes it's difficult to do that. When we see how much difficulty and how much pain and suffering there is around us, we come at those things and we say, what's going on here, God? But we know that he has promised that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we see what's going on and we say, uh, God, did you mean all things? Because what about this? What about this that's going on? Because I've tried to look at this from every angle, and I see no good in it. I mean, I've done everything I can to figure this out. I've tried worrying about this in the day. I've tried staying up late and worrying about this when I should have been falling asleep. I've tried worrying about this at 1 a.m., worrying about it at 2 a.m., worrying about it at 3 a.m., I've tried everything, God. And he says, trust me. Do you love me? Then yes, I meant this too. This too will be for your good. Bold. We must be bold. Second, we should not be fearful because of our weaknesses. Peter and John were uneducated men, but they didn't let that slow them down They knew the promise that Jesus had given that when they were on trial, he would give them the words to speak. And brothers and sisters, Christians are on trial every day of the week in our country. 
don't be worried about your weaknesses because the power and strength of God is so much greater than any weakness that we bring to the table. We cannot be fearful because of our weaknesses. Third, the name of Jesus should fill our testimony. We are not calling people to come and get religion. We are not calling people to come and just believe like Disney would have us preach. We're saying believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That name must be first and foremost in our testimony. Fourth, it should be obvious that you have been with Jesus. That only happens when we spend time reading the word and praying our heart to God and listening to what he would have for us. Because every person that we run into It should be obvious to them that we have been with Jesus. If it's not obvious, there's something broken in our testimony. And five, we should be living life so that the people will defend us because of our fruit. And that is uh, the natural result of what comes from spending time with Jesus. I pray that the church may live, and each one of us in the church may live So the people will defend us against the authorities, just as they defended Peter and John here. Let's pray. God, your word is challenging. It's challenging to me when I come and I compare myself to where I should be. And all I can say, God, is work in me. Mold me and make me who you would have me be for the glory of your name. Amen.